Good morning, Storyline. I love that scene from Shrek 2 because that's sort of how my life has felt since the pandemic started. You know, are we there yet? When is this going to end? Why are these people that I've chosen to do life with so annoying? You know, it seemed like at the start of all this that it was going to be relatively short-lived. Like we were expected to stay home for a few weeks and then it would all blow over and it would go back to normal. And we now obviously know that's not the case. And the end is maybe in sight, but maybe not. One author uses the phrase to describe certain periods of life as being a little too long and a lot too hard. And that has summed up my pandemic experience so well, and maybe yours too. You know, the longer this has dragged on, the more difficult it's become. One of the consequences of this for me has been that I've had to stop reading and watching the news. You know, as important as I think it is to be informed, I got to a point where I just couldn't mentally handle dealing with so many unknowns and so much negativity. At the start of the pandemic, I was reading all kinds of scientific journals on everything related to the coronavirus, but it eventually became a lot too hard. I just couldn't handle what scientists were saying about how little we actually know about all this. And in terms of the news, I don't think this is a unique situation we're currently in. The news is rarely good. Uh, the adage of, if it bleeds, it leads, has never been more true. One example of this that has nothing to do with anything controversial, plane crashes always make headlines. But car crashes, which kill far more people, hardly ever do. So not surprisingly, many people have a fear of flying, but almost no one has a fear of driving. And this is called coverage bias. And it's not only a documented reality, it actually shifts our perception of what is real. So for example, people rank tornadoes, which kill about 50 Americans a year, as a more common cause of death than asthma, which kills more than 4,000 Americans each year. How can we be so off on this? It's coverage bias. Every death by tornado is on the news. Not one death by asthma is ever mentioned. It may make for better TV, but it distorts our view of reality. And studies have shown the more we watch negative news, the more likely we are to assume the world is much worse off than it actually is. And psychologists have a word for this. They call it progressophobia. And it's the idea that we dread and fear losses more than we look forward to gains. You know, we naturally dwell on setbacks more than we savor good fortune. And even more than that, criticism impacts us much more deeply than praise. And it seems as though the longer the pandemic goes on, the more progressophobia spreads. Now, I'm not saying there aren't things to be concerned with, maybe even worried about. You know, people are getting sick and many are dying. The economy is in big trouble. Schools may not reopen. And then we add to that dealing with racial injustice and civil unrest. There's so much uncertainty about what the next few weeks, months, or even years will look like. Yet, and I know this is going to feel like it's coming out of left field, so just hear me out. Even though this all seems a little too long and a lot too hard, life, by almost every way we have to measure it, has actually 
never been better. In 2016, President Barack Obama said, if you had to choose a moment in history to be born and you did not know ahead of time who you would be, you didn't know whether you were going to be born into a wealthy family or a poor family, what country you'd be born in, whether you were going to be a man or a woman, if you had to choose blindly what moment you'd want to be born, you'd choose now. Now, the current state of our country makes it very clear that we have many systems in place that are broken, but that was true in 2016 as well. You know, the fact that we can now recognize this brokenness, that we can have empathy and take a stand for the displaced and dispossessed, can also be taken as another sign of progress. You know, for sure, it's not enough. Any injustice is too much. But the fact that we can recognize it and work to do something about it means that we are in a much better place than we have ever been in history. I'm not saying we've arrived because we haven't. So please hear me clearly. I'm not saying I am or we should or anyone should be satisfied with the status quo. No, we still have so much work and healing to do. Yet, it is also true that since the beginning of the Enlightenment in the 17th century, the world has made progress in every single measure of human well-being. Child mortality in every country on the planet is lower than it was 70 years ago. For an American woman, being pregnant a century ago was almost as dangerous as having breast cancer today. The number of people living in extreme poverty in the world has fallen by 137,000 every day for the last 25 years. You know, people live much longer and more comfortable lives than ever before. So even in the midst of a difficult time that's a little too long and a lot too hard, generally speaking, things are historically relatively good. So the question is, are we any happier for all of this progress? Everything's amazing and nobody's happy. What I'd like to try to look at this morning is, why is that the case? You know, what is it about the progress we've made as a human race in virtually every area, from life expectancy, health, and food, to wealth, the environment, and education, that has left us feeling so unsatisfied? And I wonder if it has something to do with the church, the institution that's meant to feed our souls, not having made as much progress in the last several hundred years as the rest of life. You know, think about this. Progress requires flexibility, innovation, and a willingness to change. And these are not things the church has generally been very good at throughout most of its existence. The church is known for its rigid adherence to rules and rituals and regulations, and that's not all bad. You know, we need some of that too. But for centuries, whenever people have tried to get the church to adapt or adjust, instead of progress, we get division. Instead of flexibility and innovation, we get a new denomination. And the problem with having thousands of different denominations is that often they will then focus on their rigid system. You know, they all believe that belief the exact details of the content of what you say you believe, or what Mike referred to last month as orthodoxy, is what matters most. 
And, you know, then, of course, in a very short period of time, the new denomination that was at one point adaptable and innovative seems out of place and out of step with the real world. Now, I'm a biology teacher, and I'm always fascinated by the way that concepts in science can speak to and provide analogies for other areas of life. So bear with me as we talk a little biology here, because I think in the midst of this pandemic, there is a biological reality that might help recapture how communities of faith can adapt and adjust and progress to feed the souls of contemporary people. So outbreaks of disease and pandemics can be caused by two different kinds of viral mutations, antigenic drift and antigenic shift. All cells, including our cells, have proteins on their surface. And we call those proteins antigens. So for example, if your red blood cells have the A antigen on them, then you have type A blood. If your red blood cells have the B antigen, you have type B blood. Your blood type is just a designation for a specific type of antigen. Viruses are also covered with antigens, and our immune system can usually recognize viral antigens as being foreign and then destroy it before that virus is able to actually get into our cells. But this resistance all breaks down when the antigens on the surface of a virus mutate or change. And when that happens, our immune system doesn't recognize it and therefore doesn't kill it. So the reason we can get a cold or the flu year after year after year is because these viruses frequently change or mutate by antigenic drift, which are just small changes in the antigens. I hope you're taking notes because this will be on the test. I miss saying that. Sorry. Anyway, antigenic drift usually results in viruses that are really closely related to each other but those small changes are enough to allow it to infect you over and over again. The coronavirus pandemic is not only a result of antigenic drift, you know, these small changes, but also of antigenic shift. This is where a virus jumps from one species to another and its antigens look nothing like our immune system has ever seen. So we have little to no protection from antigenic shift viral outbreaks. This is how a virus really becomes contagious and spreads. Antigenic drift are slight changes that allow viruses to infect us personally, while antigenic shift are big changes that allow viruses to spread from one species to another. So this is what I'm wondering. Maybe the reason the church has regressed in the last several decades in America is because, generally speaking, it lacks both antigenic drift, small changes that make the life of faith more relevant to us in our real, everyday lives, and antigenic shift, larger changes that make faith more compelling to those who aren't in the species of believers. Did you know that viruses are the most successful organisms on the planet? Do you know why? It's because they are constantly changing and mutating. 
in order to really spread and flourish and grow, maybe the church has something to learn from viruses. A few weeks ago, Mike talked about how the early followers of Jesus lived their lives, and he shared this passage two weeks in a row in which one of Jesus' first followers described how he approached life. And he said, I freely and happily became a servant to any and all. I don't argue even though I don't agree. I agree as much as I can. I don't act as if I know it all. I find common ground. When you are talking about religion, living this way is a huge change. The way of Jesus mutated the way living in and living out faith looked. But at some point along the line, the church stopped adapting and innovating and changing and started defining itself instead as a settled, static, rigid system of beliefs. The way Mike put it the last few weeks is, it chose being right over being good. And by doing so, the church essentially froze itself in time and severely limited itself from making ongoing contributions to human cultural evolution as conditions changed. You know, this gives the strong impression that every other area of life has made progress, but the church essentially became a locked door, preventing ongoing growth. Now, not all change is good, and the church has also played a very important role in reminding us of that at times. But generally speaking, the growing perception is the church will not drift, it will not shift, and therefore, it's not very contagious. And because of that, for many people within the church, the life of faith has become all about just following the rules, regulations, and rituals. This is faith without antigenic drift. No small changes are even allowed to help faith infect us personally. But when we give people permission for the faith to drift, where the way it's experienced and expressed fits us individually, the life of faith can move from rules, regulations, and rituals to a deep relevance. And then what we have hasn't just thoroughly infected us. It's become incredibly contagious, and it's ready to shift, to jump to other people. You know, by small antigenic drift changes, I mean being open to experience new rituals that make faith meaningful and connect to our real life, that serves to more deeply infect us with the impact that trusting in God's grace can have on life. And large antigenic shift changes refer to how we relate to those who are, you know, another species, if you will, who don't believe like we do. You know, like a more open and humble approach. A lot like Mike has been talking about the last few weeks when he said, being right isn't good enough. That is an antigenic shift change. So maybe a different example will help clarify this a little bit more. Uh, I played basketball in high school, and if you just watched me shoot the ball, like you didn't watch where the ball was going, you would have thought, her shot is beautiful. You know, I did all the right things, my form was good, and I hit all the rules and rituals and regulations for shooting. 
but I didn't enjoy playing basketball because my shot never went in the basket. So my junior year, my coach, Mike Gathright, started working with me on my shot. And he taught me that when you shoot a basketball, it's supposed to have backspin on it. Like up until that point, I was shooting with no spin on the ball, which is actually pretty impressive. I mean, not good, but kind of amazing. So we made this one small change to my shot and all of a sudden I could now score and basketball started to become fun. This was antigenic drift. It was a small change within me that infected me with a love for the game. Now, I haven't played much basketball in the past 20 years, but every now and then I'll stop in the gym before the Lakeshore girls start practicing and I'll shoot around with them a little bit. And they'll say, we didn't know you play basketball. And I'll answer them by saying something like, well, I really don't. And then I'll hit shot after shot after shot. And my enjoyment of the game becomes contagious to them. You know, they challenge me to shooting contests and they want me to come shoot around with them again the next day. The drift, the small change Mike made to my shot 20 years ago that infected me has now become a shift which is contagious to a whole different generation. The way of Jesus was meant to infect us personally and spread globally like a virus. Which is why Jesus said things that seem crazy like, it's good for you that I leave because I'm going to infect you with the Holy Spirit and you're going to do greater things than I could do by myself. Jesus built the church using both antigenic drift, small changes in how grace is lived in, in our real everyday lives, and antigenic shift, bigger changes around how faith is lived out. And when we recapture this vision for faith and the mission of the church, it could once again become a pandemic of grace. Jesus' first words to his disciples were, follow me. He doesn't tell them to believe certain things or recite specific creeds or sing particular songs. I mean, did you know Jesus says, follow me, 87 times in the Gospels? In other words, do as I do. He says, do what I say, zero times. This is Jesus using antigenic drift to change people's lives. It's how we become personally infected. The disciples would have approached religion as a commodity. You know, I believe these things about God, and in return, he blesses me. Jesus comes along and shows us this kind of approach to faith doesn't deeply infect who we are, and it often prevents us from truly experiencing God's grace. But living like him, living in grace like he did, does infect us. Jesus' final words to his disciples were go out into all the world. This is antigenic shift. It's contagious. It's a massive change in how people of faith at the time viewed other people on the outside, you know, people who weren't of their tribe or their species. Jesus was saying to them and to us, the good life isn't found by believing all the right things and behaving in all the right ways. It's found by spreading God's goodness and grace to the whole world. 
In the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the good life. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that Jesus didn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit because they're poor in spirit. He's not listing qualifications for how to receive the good life. I mean, these aren't conditions for us to try to achieve in order to gain the kingdom of heaven. They're not teachings on how to be blessed. You know, they actually aren't instructions at all. They don't indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or that are particularly good for human beings. What Jesus is doing here is explaining and illustrating what the good life looks like using his immediate surroundings. Jesus is on a hillside talking to the masses, which are filled with people who are poor in spirit, mourning, and persecuted. In a brilliant book called The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard rewrote this section of scripture using modern language so we might be able to relate to it a little better. And he said, Blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad. The twisted, misshapen, deformed. The too big, too little, too loud. The bald, the fat, and the old. For they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. Blessed are the flunkouts and dropouts and burned outs. The broke and the broken. The drug heads and the divorced. The HIV positive and herpes ridden. The brain damaged, the incurably ill the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying in the rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved or emotionally dead, and on and on and on. No one strives to be in these situations. And when living through any of these conditions, it can seem to go on a little too long and be a lot too hard. So maybe what Jesus is trying to tell us is that the good life has nothing to do with us trying to achieve anything, but instead involves small changes, this antigenic drift of learning how to follow him in our real everyday lives so we are more deeply and thoroughly infected with grace. And then that makes us more contagious, which is the larger change, the antigenic shift of extending God's grace to everyone, everywhere, every day. One of the things I love about Storyline is that we are currently an antigenic drift community, seeking ways to make the life of faith more relevant to each and every one of us personally. And we are trying to become more and more of an antigenic shift community, living in such a way that we are actually contagious to others. You know, our vision has always been one of antigenic drift by meeting in a public place, by using art and music and movies that are relevant to contemporary life. 
And it's also always been one of antigenic shift of how can we jump species to become contagious to people who aren't interested in attending church. That's why we desire for people to belong before they believe, no matter what they believe. And how we can say the best church for you is the church that isn't for you. You know, at Storyline, we are giving each other permission to explore what it might look like for trust in God's grace to not be about rules and regulations and rituals, but for it to become relevant in our real, everyday lives. Did you know that scientists don't classify viruses as living things? In order to qualify as living, there's a checklist of criteria something has to meet, and it has to meet all of the qualifications. So for example, all living organisms use energy, are made of cells, and grow, like among other things. Viruses fall short in one category. They don't have the ability to reproduce on their own. Viruses come alive only when they infect other cells. And what if the same is true about grace? God's grace comes alive when we are infected by it personally and infect others with it. I mean, do you know what makes the coronavirus so powerful? It's that it's both the result of antigenic drift, which allows it to infect us personally, and shift, which makes it highly contagious and easy to spread. Maybe this is also how we create a pandemic of grace. When the way we live in faith is allowed to drift in ways that make it relevant to us, and when the way we live out faith is allowed to shift in order to make it compelling for others. You know, it seems to me when we look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is what we see. Grace drifting within each believer and shifting to the entire world. And that is the good life, which never feels a little too long or a lot too hard. Let's pray. God, thank you for opportunities to still be able to connect with each other even though we can't be together. We ask that you would help us to live in and live out our faith in ways that make it both relevant to us and contagious to others. Be with us this week as we continue to process and figure out what life looks like in the middle of a viral pandemic and help us translate what that could mean for creating a pandemic of grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder that we have a Zoom call tomorrow night from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock p.m., and the link can be found on our website, and we would love for you to join us.